On the surface, all can look calm, denying the turbulent truth that lurks beneath. Things seem so good. Every ripple causes pain, division, and distraction, echoing out and churning up the waters of our faith. You'd think we would have figured it out by now. If only I'd spoken louder or taught clear his truth. Would these waves of confusion and doubt have stilled by now? It's all a haze, murky waters, and dimming light. Our divine purpose and mission seem so distant, almost out of reach. Where do we go from here? Yet in spite of the chaos, there's a stillness, a clarity, a beckoning to remember the timeless wisdom and teaching that echoes back to his loving light. Dear Church, Well, I want to welcome you here. If you're with us online, so glad that you've joined us today. There's our Skagit campus and here in the room. Really glad that you're here. Before I get going today, I just want to take a moment. Yesterday morning, I woke up to the news, as many of you did, that there had been some uh, pretty intense tension in Israel, uh, which is not uncommon. But uh, one of the things that's unique in this one is that my really good friend, Grant Fishbook, has a group from, from Christ the King, Bellingham, in Israel right now. And I was really concerned. So I started uh, communicating with Sam. Those of you who've gone to Israel with us know Sam, our guide. Checking in with Sam, see how they're doing. Texting Grant, see how they're doing. And uh, have been doing that again. Did that this morning, talking with them. I uh, want to let you know that their, their group is safe. Um, that things in the immediate Jerusalem area are are somber, but they are safe. And in fact, yesterday he said, because most people were inside, their group toured old Jerusalem by themselves and had the whole city to themselves and had a great, a great day. Uh, Grant, this morning, he communicated, our biggest concern is we're supposed to fly home Wednesday night. There's no planes coming or going from Israel right now. And I told him that we as a church would continue to lift them up and pray. So would you join me right now as we pray for them? Father, our hearts break when we see uh, the tension in our world. Man, our hearts break when we see it in our families, in our country, between nations. And we long for the day, Jesus, when you, the Prince of Peace, will set all things right. And we long for the days when weapons of war will be pounded into plowshares. And so, God, we pray now for this tension, this war in Israel. And we pray there would be a quick resolution. Father, we're thankful that, that the Christ the King group is safe. I pray, Lord, that you would give Grant and Sam wisdom as they negotiate each day and the agenda and what they're to do, and to provide uh, for them to be able to return home to their families. So, Lord, I pray that we would uh, just continue to be mindful of brothers and sisters across the globe and the need, the desperate need, for Jesus in our fallen, broken world. So we pray this in your great name. Amen. Amen. I encourage you to continue to pray for that as well as other situations that are going on uh, in our world. I'm very, very glad that you're here today, uh, especially glad that you're here today. And I, I just want to say this, that some of your family and friends um, think that you're absolutely crazy. 
And by the looks of it, they might be not that far off. But, but one of the reasons some of your family and friends think you're crazy is because you're here today. And let me explain this. Some of them would say, no, no, wait a second. Let me get this straight. On arguably the last of the best weather weekends this fall, possibly, and I'm not trying to be the Eeyore here, possibly the last day that will hit 70 degrees until later in the spring, you are gonna take time out of your weekend, out of your yard, out of your activities to lead and to join in a room inside with people, some of them you don't even know, and you're gonna sing. I mean, who sings except at birthday parties and seventh inning stretches? You're gonna sing, and, and you're gonna to listen to a guy talk for a while out of a book that's a couple thousand years old. Are you crazy? On this weekend, you would be here I mean, they would think you're certifiable. And in addition to that, some of them would say, and not only are you going to go and be a part of that, but, but you're also going to volunteer your time. I mean, you might be there for, for more than just an hour-ish or so. You might be helping out with children or parking cars or doing technology or greeting people. You're going to volunteer. And some of them say, and you, you actually pay to do this? I mean, like you give money. And if they knew that some of you are obedient to the full 10%, they would blow a gasket. You give how much? Wait, wait, wait. You're, you're talking percentage? No, you're not talking about like $10. You're talking 10%? They, are you crazy? Well, are you? And then they might say, well, and you're following this guy, Jesus, all due respect to the historic figure, but he claimed to be the only way to God. You know, there's a lot of religions out there. That's pretty exclusive. That's pretty narrow. And you're following a guy that's that narrow and you can't even see him. And, and, and listen, can't you follow him and believe in him without doing this? See, some of your friends and family are thinking you're absolutely crazy for being here today. And it's not just those who are far from God or atheists or that. Some of your friends and family who would claim to be followers of Jesus would think you're crazy for being here today. I heard a podcast just two weeks ago with a man named Jim Davis. He and his organization did this massive study and have come to the, uh, the, the conclusion of the results of, these, of the, the data that we are currently in the largest and fastest church attendance exit in all of U.S. history. There are more people leaving the church today, these days, than has ever been recorded. And it's not just those who are deconverting, saying, I don't believe anymore, or deconstructing. It's not the same, uh, you know, the structure that I, I had when I was a kid. I'm going to... These are people that would call themselves Christians, Orthodox Christians, Evangelical Christians. Less and less are actually going to gatherings like this. And many of them would say, are you crazy? And so today, I want to address that issue and why I don't think you're crazy. Now, a little disclaimer right up front. I want you to hear this, and I want you to log this away, because there, and I, and I ask our elders uh, to pray about this with us this weekend, and our pastors prayed about this this morning. I don't want this sermon in any way to be a heavy-handed guilt deal. I don't want it to be an arm-twisting manipulation of, boy, he made me feel bad. That is not what I want. I don't want you to walk out of here with this burden of legalism and obligation, not at all. What I want you to walk out of here with is understanding why it's not crazy for you to be here today. 
All right, so let's get into it. We're, we're in this series called Dear Church, and as I've said from the beginning, these are lessons pulled out of a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Corinthians, the, the Corinthians church in Corinth, Greece, and we're not studying directly through the book of 1 Corinthians. It would take a long time, and unfortunately, there's a lot of things we have to skip over. The first three weeks of this series, we barely got out of chapter one. We're going to have to skip most of chapter two. Today, we're going to be in chapter three. And if you have your Bible or devices, you want to turn there, that would be great. There's going to be one primary verse we're going to look at, but uh, surrounding ones as well. In chapter three, we are going to find this beautiful, mysterious, profound statement that I think addresses why it's not crazy for us to be here. Now, as you know, uh, if you've been here in the series, we, we looked at some of the, the historic, geographic, and cultural backdrop for this letter that Paul wrote. Paul had been on a missionary journey, and he had been in, in, um, throughout uh, Asia Minor. He'd been in what we would call Turkey as well as, as Greece. And what he found in that first century, in that Greco-Roman, the Roman Empire, was that there was a very pluralistic mindset. A lot of different belief systems, a lot of different religions. There were Roman gods, there was Greek gods and goddesses. There was influence from the Egyptian styles of belief and even some from the East, from Asia had come in. And there was all this, as well as Judaism. When, when he was in Ephesus, one of the, the, the crown jewels of Ephesus was the temple to Artemis. It was, it was so massive, it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And then he goes into Greece, and there again, there are temples, there are shrines, there are altars to all these different gods and goddesses. On his way to Corinth, he stops in Athens, and there he recognizes that, that the people there are, are very immersed in spiritualism of some sort, very religious, and he goes to a place called the Areopagus. The Areopagus was this gathering place where all of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers would come around and, and, and talk about philosophy and the latest ideas and all we are is dust in the wind, kind of the thing going on there. And so he goes there and he begins to tell them about Jesus and they're like, this is new, tell us about this one. And this is what we read that happens in Athens in Acts chapter 17. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. He goes around and he sees there's this temple and there's this temple and there's this altar and there's this shrine, all these different things. And there's one that even says to the unknown God, in case we missed one, because you don't want a deity saying, hey, you left me out. So they put up this altar that says, if you're not, if you don't find your temple here, this one's yours. It's kind of like what you do at Christmas when you have that extra gift in the closet, just in case someone shows up and, oh yeah, look what we got you. Nice. Applets and cutlets, everyone's favorite. Okay. So they have this, they have this altar set up for this unknown God. And he says, let me tell you about the unknown God. But what's interesting is he does this on Mars Hill and just literally, I mean, almost a stone's throw away up from Mars Hill is the Acropolis where you have the Parthenon. Very familiar, I've got a picture of this. Some, many of you have seen this before, the Parthenon. Very familiar temple to Athena. Athena was uh, supposedly the daughter of Zeus and she was the patron goddess of Athens. Athens, Athena, you see the connection there. So he can see this temple and all these other temples. There are all these temples to the deities, the different gods and goddesses. 
Well, he leaves Athens and he travels 50 miles down toward Corinth and he shows up in Corinth and again, a very Greco-Roman city. Nothing has is, is changed. There's just different temples. In fact, uh, in Corinth, there's a picture here of the, the ruins of the temple to, Apollos, uh, to Apollo. And this is, you know, these fabulous stone structures. And the interesting thing about this picture is that the temple to Apollo there, the ruins, the columns are there. But up behind that on the mountain is what is called the Acrocorinth. And up on that Acropolis, up there, the Acrocorinth, was the ruin, is now the ruins of what once was the temple to the goddess Aphrodite. Aphrodite, this, this love and fertility goddess. And in the height of its day, extra biblical sources would say, not the Bible, but extra biblical sources would say that this temple employed 1,000 cult prostitutes to perform uh, ritual se sexual acts to this goddess Aphrodite. Well, it's not just these two. There's also a temple to Poseidon, there's a temple to Hermes, there's a temple to Isis, to Fortuna. There's all of these different temples and shrines. And so Paul is seeing this. Now, when he comes to this church and he plants this church, you begin to understand they've grown up, these Corinthians have grown up seeing these temples, uh, playing around them as kids, going to them as adults, worshiping these pagan gods and goddesses, making sacrifices, doing unthinkable acts up at Aphrodite's uh, temple. They, they've been a part of this. They're immersed in this. And the mindset is this, that every deity has a temple, a dwelling place for them to be. So now these Corinthians that believe in Jesus, they're having to shift their understanding and their thinking. Because now they're following Jesus. They're not, no longer going to these, these temples anymore. But as we saw early on, there are also Jewish followers of Jesus in the church in Corinth too. You remember Crispus, who was the synagogue leader, he and his whole family, and there were other Jewish people there. The Jewish people that were in Corinth, they would have nothing to do with the temples. They'd have nothing to do with the, the pagan religions, the idols, the gods, and the goddesses. This will become a tension point with some food that sacrificed idols later. We may or may not get into that. Because they wouldn't even consider going to one of these temples or worshiping there. They had the Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. There's only one God, they would say. None of these gods and goddesses. They had the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other God before you. No, no, no. We have Yahweh. That's it. You should not make any graven images. They would not have a statue. They would not have a, 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 some kind of rendering of their deity. And so they would have nothing to do with this. But the Jewish people had their own temple as well. And it goes so deep into their history. Back to when Moses was in the wilderness and God said, Sent up, set up a tent where I can meet with you. And that tent became the tabernacle made according to the pattern that he laid out for them. And the tabernacle had the sanctuary and in the sanctuary was the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And that was the dwelling place. That was the dwelling place of Yahweh. And that tabernacle was mobile. It would go with them for the 40 years in the wilderness. And then when they came into, into the promised land, it was eventually set up in Shiloh. And there it stayed in Shiloh for 369 years until one day David in his palatial suite says, why am I living in a palace and God's living in a tent? He needs a temple. And so you have the temple that was not built by David, but by his son Solomon. And that was this place of worship. This is where Yahweh dwelled. They had the same mentality. 
And that temple was destroyed with the Babylonian exile, and Zerubbabel came and rebuilt it. And then later, in Jesus' day, before, just before Jesus was born, Herod began to build Herod's temple, and it was spectacular. It was up on this mountain. It was in all of eastern Mediterranean area. It was the greatest building there was. And as they would go up to this, this, this temple to, to make sacrifices, to celebrate these festivals, they would sing these psalms of ascent as they're ascending up. You find these in the latter part, the last chapters of psalms. They will say a psalm of ascent. These are the ones that they would sing on their way up to the temple. In Psalm 122, one of these psalms of ascent, it says, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Let us go up to the house of the Lord, that temple. So in the, in the Greek, the Roman, even in the Jewish mindset, the whole idea is that the deity, whether it's Yahweh or Aphrodite or Apollo or, or Athena, they all dwell in a temple. And they would build these temples elaborate, massive, impressive. A little side note, if you've done any traveling especially like in Europe and around, you may have come across uh, temples, cathedrals, basilicas that are far greater than what you normally find in the United States. And I will say this, there's something about being in a building like that that is awe-inspiring. There's a level of reverence. If you've ever been to Rome, if you've been to the Vatican, if you've been to St. Peter's Basilica, St. Peter's Basilica is the largest church building on the planet, 164,000 square feet the ceiling is 150 feet high. The massive dome in the middle, the top of the dome is 400 feet tall. I mean, the last time I was there, this is not hyperbole, I looked around at the dimensions of this, the height of the ceiling, the dome, and I thought, you could fly an airplane in here. You real, and I'm not talking ultralight. You could fly an airplane, it is that massive. And there's something about being in that with the artwork and the architecture that just raises your eyes up. It gives you a feeling, a small glimpse of the transcendent. And it's very humbling because you realize how small you are. There, there is a spiritual experience that happens in architecture. Do you remember the 80s? Okay, not those 80s, the 1880s. In 1882, ground was broken on a brand new church. It's called Sagrada Familia, the sacred family in Barcelona. Maybe you've seen this. I've got a picture of this one as well. This church began construction in 1882. It is scheduled for completion in 2030 or 2032. 150 years it's taking to build this church. And there's something about that. But I don't care how big or how elaborate, or how expensive, or how ornate any building is, it cannot contain God. I learned this from The Simpsons. <laughs> There's an episode in The Simpsons where Homer uh, has done something horrible. He's pledged money to PBS that he can't pay. So he has to go on a missions trip. And he comes home from the missions trip, and he says, I don't know much about God, but we sure built him a nice little cage. I don't care how big your cage is, God cannot be contained in that. As Stephen, who was the first martyr of the church, was being brought before the Sanhedrin there in Jerusalem, there in the shadow of the temple, and he makes a defense for himself, and he gives all this history of the Jewish history, and then he says these words in Acts chapter 7, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. 
As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where, where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You can't put God in a cage. And so now there are these followers of Jesus that have been raised with temples to their deities or a temple to Yahweh, and now we're following Jesus. And there probably was this mindset of, shouldn't we build a temple? Shouldn't there be a, a, a new house of God? I rejoice when they said, let's go to the house of God. Shouldn't there be a new one now that we're following Jesus? And Paul brings out this profound paradigm mindset shifting idea when he says, in essence, this, you don't go to, you are God's house. It's not this temple that God dwells in. As it says in uh, 1 Timothy 3.15, you belong to the household of God. You are God's house. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians um, 3, where we are today, if you've got that open, you can look in verse 9. Paul uses two metaphors. One's an agricultural metaphor and one's an architectural metaphor. We won't go into the agricultural one, but he says, you are God's field. And he talks about producing much. And then he says, and you are God's building. You are his building. Now think of what is going through their mind in the shadow of all of these massive temples. And he says, you are God's building. He says, yes, there is one God. And yes, he does dwell in his temple, but it's not what you think. And so he makes this statement that is both beautiful, profound, mysterious, and enigmatic. What is this all about? And this is the verse that changes everything. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. You can look along and be on the screens as well. He says this. Don't you know that you yourselves, he's not talking individually. He's talking about the following, the gathering. You yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you. He, he's saying this and there's temples to all these different different deities and, and the Jewish mind had the temple in Jerusalem and he says, no, no, no. The temple that God dwells in, the Holy of Holies, is not a building somewhere. It's you. Jesus had said just 25 years earlier, I will build my church. And it wasn't a building. And for 2,000 years, Jesus has been building his church in an ever-growing, ever-expanding, glorious way where he dwells, the Holy of Holies, the very dwelling of God, the temple of God is his people. This was new thinking for them. No deity had ever done that. They always dwelt in these temples. You know, I was raised going to church, I mean, all the time. My dad was a pastor. Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday morning church, Sunday night church, Wednesday night, the whole deal, on and on, VBS, missionaries meetings, revivals. We were at church all the time. And we lived right next door to the church, so we, we were there all the time. And, and there were people, and I'll just be politically incorrect, older saints, always older saints, that would always tell my brother and I what we weren't supposed to do in God's house. Don't run in God's house. No horseplay. This is God's house. Don't be so rambunctious. This is God's house. Quiet down. You're in the house of God. Don't laugh. This is God's house. No, it's not. I'm God's house. I'm, I, I am God. I'm glad that my parents weren't like that. My parents didn't, didn't put that, this is the house of God thing. In fact, my dad, my dad was a pastor. He got this. 
He understood that a building is not sacred. The people, the gathering, the church is. My dad was a pastor. And their church used to do this traditional singing Christmas tree thing. Let, let me tell you how my dad understood that the, the building wasn't the sacred thing. One year at their traditional Christmas, singing Christmas tree, he rode his Harley onto the platform dressed like Elvis. <laughs> Some of you are saying, this explains our pastor. <laughs> oh, yes, it does. And let me just say, you will never, ever, ever, ever hear me say to your kids out here, stop running in the house of the Lord. You will never hear me say that. I might say, slow down so you don't knock over the old guys like me. I might say that, but never will you hear me say, stop horsing around. This is God's house. It's not. They are. We are the house of God. So, so you have these, these people that have under, are trying to change their understanding of where God dwells, and Paul lays this out. And it's Paul's, it's his invitation and his expectation. It's his invitation to remind them that, listen, this is where God dwells. It's right within you. And the expectation, if that's the case, if we are the temple of God, then how is it that we are to live? How is it that we are to interact? How is it that we are to get along within here? And this is really the, the issues that he covers for the rest of the book, all of these things. In every other situation, you would go to a temple to seek a deity. You would go to a temple to pray to a deity. You would go to a temple to make a sacrifice to a deity. You would go there to try and connect with the deity. Jesus turns the whole thing around upside down on its head like he always does. It's in Matthew 18. Jesus said, for where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Did you follow the difference there? The old mindset is we go there to try and be with God. Jesus says, you come together in my name, I come here to be with you. You are my holy of holies. You are my dwelling you are my temple. That God's holy dwelling is in his gathered people. When we come together, this is holy ground. I want to just for, for just a few moments um, talk to our online campus. We are so grateful that you worship with us, that you attend online. And I love that we have this option. I'm so grateful that we have Pastor Brian, who is our online uh, campus pastor thankful that you're a part of this. And one of the things that I love about this is that because we have our online campus, location is not a limitation. It doesn't matter where you are. You can be a part of Cornwall Church. In fact, Wednesday night at our refuge service, I had a lady say, we're going to be moving to Texas. You're going to keep your online presence, aren't you? I said, oh yeah. She said, well, we will be attending every single week. I love that. I love that sometimes when there's a health issue and maybe you can't get out or maybe you shouldn't be around more people that you have that option or a child is sick or you're sick for the weekend that you can still attend. I love that. I love that when you're not here and you're on vacation, you can still attend. Last weekend I was in Vancouver, Washington and on Saturday night I was able to attend and worship and hear Pastor Brian and just sing the songs together with us. I love that. One of the things I really love is that it's the new front door to the church that people can come and attend Cornwall without ever having stepped in the building. And for some of you, you say, if I came into your building, the roof would collapse. Stay online for a bit. But we, we, we're so grateful. We hear this all the time. People say, I've been, I've been watching for the last year. I decided this is my first week. I'm going to show up in person. So grateful for that. Let me just say to those of you who are in the area and who are able, and for you, it's solely a convenience you might just want to reevaluate that. That's all. 
But those of you online, we're so grateful that you're a part of us because God's holy dwelling is in his gathered people. This is not the only time. Paul has to remind them of this. In the other letter that we have that he wrote, in 2 Corinthians, he comes back to it again just to put it on the forefront of their thinking. In 2 Corinthians 6, which we're not going to spend any, very much time in 2 Corinthians, he writes this, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? Remember, he's already told them what the temple of God is. It's not a building. It's not in Jerusalem. It's wherever God's people are. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we, we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. If you've been here in the whole series, you, you remember in the first, uh, first week or two, we pointed out that Paul addresses them and calls them saints. Not because of their lifestyle, but because of their position in Christ. That we are saints because we've been redeemed, because we've been brought into the family, because we are in Christ. And now what he's saying is, yes, positionally you are saints. You believe. You belong. Now you need to behave. And that's where he's saying there needs to be this transformation, this yielding and surrendering to God and his spirit and this changing of our old ways, our fleshly ways, our worldly ways, the, the mindset of the world, and to follow the ways of Jesus. And he ups the bar. He says, not only are you saints, you are a sacred temple. You're a sacred temple. So individually, yes, continue to grow and be transformed, but together grow and be transformed into this beautiful temple where God dwells right there. And he takes this very seriously. And I won't spend much time on this at all. But in the following verse, he says a very strong and sobering thing. Back to 1 Corinthians 3. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. God takes this very, very seriously, more seriously than we do. That the church, the body of Christ, the fellowship, the gathering of believers is very sacred and holy, set apart for God's pleasure, set apart for God's purposes to him. Now you can say, well, yeah, I get that big C church, the universal church, the global church, get all that. No, no, no. Remember, that while that's true, who's this letter to? It's to a local congregation. It's to a local church, a, a local family of God, a local body of believers, a local bride of Christ. He's not saying this across the... He's just saying, for you in Corinth. So, if that's the case... Could we look at it, not as just something that Paul wrote to a church 2,000 years ago, clearing Greece, but could these truths be applied to us at Cornwall Church here today? So I just want to warn you, for the next few minutes, I'm going to be mixing my metaphors. I'm going to be weaving in and out of Corinth and Cornwall, and I'm going to be kind of mashing together the figurative and the literal. So there's going to have to be changing hats, okay? Can you do that? Are you well caffeinated? Can we do that today? All right. So to do that, um, let, me, let me show you. So I've got something up here. I didn't know if you noticed this. 
this is a, this is going to be a, a visual, tangible, visual representation of the temple of God called Cornwall Church. Okay, this, this is not the temple, but it's going to be a visual representation for my purposes. Okay, um, it's a visual representation. It, it's actually, oops, just lost the roof. We always wanted to have a retractable roof in here. This, made out of Legos, by the way, you didn't know you'd come to church to have Lego land. This made out of Legos is a, is a visual representation of the temple of God. This isn't the temple of God. So are we clear on this? Visual representation of the temple of God here at Cornwall Church. So, so you got to ask yourself, um, for us, what makes a great church? And what makes a good church great? What really makes it a church that, that God says, yes, that they get it? And you can say, well, it would be a good pastor, which we keep praying for one of these days. And that's true. That's true. Or we need good leadership, godly leadership, and that's great. But think about this. The church in Corinth, did they have good pastors? The apostle Paul is their founding pastor. It doesn't get much better than that. It's really only one step up. Jesus I mean, they've got a really good pastor, and after he's done, after he's done his work, we looked at this, Apollos comes in. You remember Apollos from Alexandria? The guy is brilliant. He's educated. He knows scripture inside and out. He's committed. He's very, very, uh, like in his communication, he's charismatic. He is very convincing. He goes head to head and toe to toe with the Jewish people. I mean, he does it. He was their pastor. The, the, the volunteers and the leaders they had in their church, Aquila and Priscilla, they were volunteers in the church. They were leaders there. Silas and Timothy came and they led. You talk about a church that has good pastors and good leadership. It's Corinth Church. But the church was a mess. And I think what Paul is going to get at here is that what makes a great church, a great temple for God, is, yeah, it's, it's what we're all doing here together but it's more than just the pastor and the leadership. It's the quality of every Lego that goes into the temple. Because he shifts now, if you're in 1 Corinthians, if you've got it still open there, look at verse 10 when he says this. But each one, each one, now he's not talking about the whole, us as a whole, now he's talking about individuals. Each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can, can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Which, as you know around here, this is our non-negotiable, the centrality of Christ. That's the foundation of this church. It always has been. It always will be. That is the irreducible minimum. Nothing else. Jesus is always at. He is the foundation. It's built on that. But he says, the superstructure of this temple that God dwells is built by each one of us. Each one builds this. And then he says something else. If any man builds on this foundation, which is Jesus Christ, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is. Now, you read that verse and immediately you think of the three little pigs, don't you? I mean, of course, he's like, ah, this little piggy built this temple. Okay, whatever it is. So, that's not good. And, 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 and I, man, I read commentaries where they go so deep on this. I don't want to go so deep on this. Basically, you have these materials that you can build the temple with, and they have kind of a declining value. But really what I want to point out is that three of them are lasting and three of them are not lasting. Three of them are valuable and three of them are not as valuable. 
gold, silver, and costly stones, you put fire to them, they will, they will remain. Wood, hay, and straw, you put fire to that, and that's what he refers to. It's not going to remain. And so he says, so be careful, every one of you, as a part of this temple, of how you build. Now, I probably don't have time for this, but let me throw it in there real quickly anyway. For Paul, as a Jewish mind, this wasn't just some random materials that he comes up with. He's thinking back to the original temple. When David says, I want to build a temple for God, and God says, your son can, but you're not going to. And this is what it says in 1 Chronicles 29. David writes or says, with all my resources, I have provided for the temple of my God. Gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise, stones of various colors, and all kinds of fine stones and marble, all of these in large quantities. When Paul says, when you are building God's temple, think about what David used. What he used was, he was building with materials worthy of God. And now he says, we're not talking about literal physical materials. We're talking about our lives. I kind of thought of this rhyme that may be saying, if David gave his very best, how could we do any less? If when he was preparing the temple for his God, he would give the most valuable, the most precious, the best he had. When we're building the temple for God, how could we give any less? And the materials are our lives. You know, make me a vessel. We sing about that today. Now, all week I debated whether or not to go into Pink Floyd's. All in all, we're just another brick in the wall. <laughs> but I decided not to. Because all in all, we are a brick at Cornwall. Oh, yeah. Oh, come on. Come on. Yep, I went there. I did. Some of you saying, yeah, thank you. Some of you saying, wow, Bob, you, you're taking this one a little too far. Am I? Look at these words out of 1 Peter. As you come to him, Jesus, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, now he's comparing us to Jesus, you also like living stones. You also like stones that have been chosen by God that are precious, precious to him. You also are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. What's the quality of my life that is being built for the temple of God? So let me bring this back to Cornwall Church because this gathering is the temple of God. It's the temple of God called Cornwall Church. And this temple of God was started in 1906. It started building with Christ as the foundation. And for generations, over 100 years, people have been building this temple. People that have lives that go into this. I came to be a part of this temple in 1987. And there was a lady named Vera Pickert not impressive by any human standards at all. Old lady, very poor, not very gifted, but she loved Jesus. And she served tirelessly in the nursery, teacher Vera, year after year after year. 
And there was a woman named Carol Jensen who lived right next door to the building there on Meridian Street. Carol loved the Lord, submitted her life to him, was being transformed by him, served, worshiped, faithfully gave. When we were doing a building campaign to buy this land and these, build this building, we were trying to raise millions of dollars. She didn't have millions of dollars. She gave what she could above her tithe. And I had made the statement, this is no way to pat myself on the back. I had made a statement to let people know I was not asking them to do something that I wasn't willing to do, that I was sacrificing. I drove an old Jeep Cherokee at the time, and it was on its last leg. I said, I was going to buy a new vehicle, but I'm putting that money towards this campaign, and I'm just going to drive this thing, pray that it keeps running. Carol Jensen, this little lady about this tall, she said, Bob, if you ever need to use my car, she had a little Dodge Colt. And that Christmas, I was going down to be with my parents, and I honestly didn't think my Jeep would make it. She let me drive her Dodge Colt. That kind of a heart. Gold and silver. Costly stones. There was a woman named Ann Zanow. British lady. She outlived five husbands and then no one would date her. <laughs> True story. She had the gift of evangelism. This dear, sweet old saint would go door to door telling about Jesus. And there are people in the kingdom of God today. Because Ann Zanow had a life of gold, silver, costly stones. Milo and Mary Watts. Mary had been our treasurer for many years. They attended, they served God, they loved his people. Mary was our treasurer, and there were times in the lean years, I think, in the 60s, when the offerings didn't cover all the bills. And Milo and Mary said, you know what? We'll pay the electric bill above and beyond. They just gave a precious stone in the temple of God. Tom and Francis Purcell, prayer warriors like no other, they would hear a prayer request, and they would continue to pray. One time I asked our senior saints to, I was a youth pastor, to adopt one of the students and be praying for them. Years later, Francis said, how's so-and-so doing? I've been praying for him every day. This was years later. Tom was a Pearl Harbor survivor. He was a retired pastor. He would come on Saturdays and volunteer. One of the things that he would do is just go around and look, are there any light bulbs out? just served, just gave of their lives. Leonard and Helen Kristen. Helen was 106 when she passed away a couple years ago, and she was still a part of this church. They served. They sang in the choir. They played piano and organ, faithfully part of this church. I mean, you just go on. Lyle and Altruth Calkins. Altruth's 100 years old. She'll be at the next service. They're part of this church. Alfred says back in the late 60s when they were building that building over on, on Meridian, on Saturdays, they would all come out and she would take a hammer and pound nails in building that church. I, if I had time, I'd tell you more about Lyle and a statement that he made that really gave me permission to take a bold move with this church that really impacted hundreds of lives. I mean, you just go on and Ray and Marge Backman, they'll be at the next service. It goes on and on, all of these people. Leela Ann Rule, Larry and Avalee Watts, 
Joanne Norris, who's probably been a, a part of this church longer than anyone else alive. I won't tell you how old she is, but she's retired. When she was born, her parents brought her to Cornwall Park Church of God. It, it's these kind of lives. Gold, silver, costly stones that this temple has been built on. And I wonder, what stories will they say about us? You know what makes a life a building block that's made of gold and silver? It's a surrender to God to be transformed by his spirit. It's a willingness to be a part of this temple. It's to worship. It's to serve. It's to give. It's to participate. It's to be a part of the expression of the kingdom of God in this world. And I don't want this, oh, I don't want this to be a guilt question. I want this to be a question for reflection. What would Cornwall Church be like if everyone was just like me? And when I think about that, there are some areas where I think we would excel, and there are some areas where it would not be pretty. What if everyone came with an attitude of worship the way I do? What if everyone came with the same expectation to hear from God's word and apply it the way I do? What if everyone was willing to go outside of these walls and go and be the way I do? What would it be like if everyone encouraged, sharpened one another as iron sharpens iron, be in community together, to give, to serve, to surrender? Is our life gold, silver, and costly stones, or is it wood, hay, and straw? Ephesians 2 says this, and I'll close with this. Christ Jesus himself, as the chief cornerstone, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You see, that's why I say, you're not crazy. You're not crazy. So today, on your way out, you're going to be given um, a little Lego block. Different sizes, different colors, different shapes, every single one of you. And those of you online, if you checked in, we're mailing one to you this week. You're going to be given a Lego block. I'm not trying to be gimmicky here, but I'm giving you this for two reasons. One, I would love for you to put it in a place where you will see it every day as a reminder that you are a part of the temple that is being built where God dwells. And also, as a reflection, God, are there areas in my life where I'm offering you wood, hay, and straw and allow the Holy Spirit to lead you on that.